0: So I'm going to need your help this morning. Um, Yeah, I just, I want you guys to be praying. I want you guys to be praying uh, that, thank you, that this sermon would be effective, uh, that this message would be accompanied by the power of the Spirit, that if there is any unbelievers here, that their hearts would be transformed by the Word of the Lord, and that the saints would be edified. I think we should make this a regular practice. We should be praying for uh, the services prior to the services, during the services, after the services. Uh, this is the job of, our, of us as saints. Uh, we are all here to work uh, in the ministry, not to just be a, a consumer, but to work within the ministry. God has called us all and transformed us to work in his kingdom. So I ask that of you. Um, I'm going to pray. Lord God, we thank you for today, we thank you for this morning, and you waking us up and giving us a new day, and a new grace, and a new mercy before you, Lord. We thank you that you've redeemed us by the blood of Jesus, Lord. Uh, You've made us new creatures in Christ Jesus, and we are created to worship and praise you. We are created for your namesake and for your glory, Lord. As we peer into the scriptures, Lord, would you lead us to have a greater understanding of what our purpose is, what you saved us from, and what it is that we are supposed to be doing on a daily basis? Lord, it is such a privilege that I get to stand here and proclaim your word, that I get to stand here and commune with you at this very moment, that I get to talk to the God of the universe, the Creator God, and that all your saints, all your children get that wonderful privilege of communing with you on a daily basis, Lord. May we not take that for granted. May we be people who are serious about our faith in you, Lord. And may that be first and foremost in our lives, over and above everything else, Lord. We are not our own. Our hearts belong to you, Lord. Do your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How's everybody doing? Good? Good, good. Welcome to Elgro Bible Church. Uh, so I want to talk about seeking God through prayer and scripture. But first I want to talk about our state prior to God's grace affecting our lives, how we fell into sin and turned aside to worship things and ourselves. And then I want to talk about how God's grace has drawn us back to our original purpose in which he created us, and how we get an awesome privilege of communion with him, mainly through prayer and scripture. Sound good? All right. All right, so to really know how blessed that we've been, we have to go back and talk about what God has saved us from. We have to go about and talk about this this doctrine called depravity. And we see that most clearly in Romans chapter 1. So if you would turn there, Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18. God's wrath on unrighteousness. In 18 it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile and their thinkings and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. Amen. So if we understand what that means, that is a tough reality in which man is faced with. This is us before a holy God. And he starts out saying that the wrath of God is being revealed. God is enacting his anger, his perfect justice against all the evil of men. He says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And every man walking the face of this earth falls into that category. Every man, woman, and child is born with the original sin. We are all in this state before a holy God. And God is is enacting his anger, his perfect justice against the evils of men. He says that we suppress, that we hold, that we, we press down the truth of God by our sinfulness, by our wickedness. We press down, we suppress the truth of God. And he says that we, he can clearly be seen through nature. If we just look around, look around, not in here, because it's, not too much nature, but if you go outside, (laughs) if you go on a hike, some folks went hiking yesterday and walked around and saw nature. As you look at nature, God's revelation is clear. It is clearly revealed and we should be able to see. He says that you can clearly see that he is God, right? So we look around at the trees, the sun, the ocean, the space. We look at whatever, and his revelation is clearly perceived through nature, right? It's amazing how uh, people who, who claim that they don't believe in God love to go out into nature. They love to go on hikes, go to the Grand Canyon, look at stars, and you know, go to the ocean and see the expanse. And they glory at these things. They glory at these amazing things, and they think in their mind that this just all came together from some big bang, some evolution, really? That takes faith. We should look out at nature and God's revealed nature and, and clearly see that, wow, look at the complexity of the structure. Look at how amazing these things are. Clearly, God has created this. Every man should be able to see that. You guys, you ever see a hummingbird? I'm very fascinated with hummingbirds. They are amazing little birds. They're some of the smallest birds. I'm going to talk a little bit about hummingbirds, if you wouldn't mind. (laughs) So their name comes from the fact that they flap their wings so fast at about 70 to 80 times per second. What they make uh, is a humming noise. Hummingbirds can fly right. They can fly left, up, down, backwards, and even upside down. They're also able to hover in mid-air by flapping their wings in a figure-eight pattern. You're some of the smallest birds, they can hear better than humans. Uh, they can see farther than humans. Hummingbirds can see ultraviolet light. Hummingbirds could also hover in mid-air. Um, they fly an average of 25 to 30 miles an hour. They can dive up to 60 miles an hour. And hummingbirds will rotate in a full circle. They're amazing little birds. I encourage you all after this sermon to get on your phone and YouTube hummingbirds. There are documentaries about hummingbirds and how awesome they are, right? But that's just one of millions of things that God has created, right? And we can look at these things and just see how amazing it is and see how just the structure has come together. The Bible says that he holds everything together by the word of his mouth by the power of his mouth. He has created everything by the word of his mouth and understand that we are in a fallen state. So I'm looking at this hummingbird in a fallen state and I'm still amazed by it. I can still see the glories of God at this hummingbird, right? Just flapping away, just just flapping away, right? It's amazing. Turn to Job 12, verse seven. Job chapter 12. Verse seven says, but the beast, but ask the beasts, and they will teach you the birds of the heavens and they will tell you or the bushes of the earth and they will teach you and the fish of the sea will declare to you who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. The breath of all mankind. He's saying, look at these creatures that God has created. You can clearly see that God has done this. Not, not some crazy random occurrence that happened years, thousands of years ago, millions of years ago. That's absurd. It's an absurd assertion. Think about it. Maybe some of you guys are doing projects on your home, right? And you go into Home Depot, and you see all the parts in Home Depot and different aisles. There's wood. There's toilets. There's uh, washers. I don't know what else they have there. I don't go there that often. There's a lot of stuff there, right? But think about, you know, we're in, we're in Elk Grove, California, and there's just this random occurrence, and, and, and things just started happening, and a tornado came through Elk Grove, and it just came to, to this Home Depot and hit this Home Depot. And, and, and everything in the Home Depot just started floating around, floating around, floating around. And, and, and once the tornado ended, you had this perfect house. <laughs> this perfect house. Can you imagine that? It's absurd. And that's how absurd it is to say that a big bang cause all of this to just come about and, and, and operate in such a way. If we understand science, that if the sun was just a little bit closer to the earth, then we would burn. If it was just a little bit farther, then we would freeze to death. The, the, the earth, the universe is, is structured and put together perfectly by God, and he spoke it into being. He's amazing. He is amazing. So we should be able to clearly see God revealed through nature. We should be able to look out, and he is saying that we have ignored it. We have suppressed the truth. His attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been created so that they are without excuse. Without excuse Psalm 19, you don't have to turn there. One says, "The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 89:11, "The heavens are yours. The earth is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south you have created them." Tabor and Herman joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand, high is your hand. God's existence and attributes are so plainly evident in nature that every man can know him, every man knows him in such a way that it renders them without excuse for their lack of reverence towards him. It renders us without excuse. We have no excuse before a holy God of why we are not honoring him and giving him thanks. What happens when we know God, yet we don't honor him or give him thanks? He says that we become futile in our thinking. And this implies that he's an honorable God he is a God who is to be glorified. He is an amazing God, and that he is a God who is to be thanked. He's praiseworthy. He's glorious. He's to be exalted, not just as some great creature, but as God, as the God of God. There is no one even close to him. The Bible says that he is holy, 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 that he is set apart. He is cut above. There is no one like him. He is God and he's incomparable to any creature or created thing. He's the one who made every creature and created all things. It implies that we need to to thank him for what he has done. We need to thank him for who he is. The Bible calls us and beckons us to be thankful to God, to praise him in such a way and give thanks always in all circumstances. This is the type of God that we serve. He says, our thinking becomes futile or without purpose when we don't give God his due praise. We don't have a purpose anymore. We are outside of our purpose because our very reason for existing is to honor God and to thank him. That is why we are here on the earth. That is why human beings were created, is to honor God and to give him thanks. Anyone Everyone who was called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. That's Isaiah 43.7. Everyone who was called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. When we turn from that purpose, when we turn from God, all usefulness of us is emptied. Without God, there is just darkness left and all manner of evil, which we see clearly talked about in the text. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. He's completely justified in his wrath. So again, understanding that God's wrath, his righteous anger has fallen on mankind because of our wickedness, because we are so wicked we suppress the truth. And he says that, look, I can be clearly seen through nature. You're without excuse. You have no excuse to not give me honor and give me praise. Without you doing such, without you glorifying me, you have no purpose here on earth. This is the very reason why I've created you. You become futile in your, in your thinking. Your foolish hearts were darkened. You, you claim to be wise, but you're really a fool. And you exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We've turned away from the glorious God to worship the created things. To worship the created things. And God gave us up in our lust of our heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of our bodies among ourselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. God is perfectly justified in his wrath against us because there is a, a divine absurdity in his people turning from him to worship the created things, to worship ourselves. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11. He says in, in 11, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water." He says, my people have have changed their gods for that which are no gods. And they've, in that, have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Our glory is not wrapped up in ourselves. Our glory is wrapped up in God, right? If, If we are apart from God, then there is nothing glorious about us. For everything that we do has no profit, and it will equate to destruction, he says, be appalled, O heavens. All the heavenly beings, all the angels, do you see this? Be appalled at what man is doing to God. Remember what happened to the angels when they turned from God. Be appalled, be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed to evils. They have forsaken the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what happened was the people would make these structures uh, kind of like plaster. Uh, a lot of times in the mountains uh, where there was like streams coming down, and they would catch water, right? And you know, if it was a good cistern, then people would have some good water to drink. But a lot of times what would happen is these cisterns would crack and mud would get in it, and rodents, dead animals, different things would get in it. And they would have these disgusting, mucky waters, right? And God is comparing himself to the fountain of living water. The glorious God is the fountain of living water. He says that you have turned from that purified water to, to this water in this broken cistern, this mucky water. You've turned to that. And he's even saying that sisters can't even hold water. They can hold no water, right? So I want us to see and truly understand the absurdity of how we operate in this world. Apart from God, we profit nothing. Apart from God, there's destruction. Apart from God, there's wrath. In our purpose, in the reason that he created us, Was for himself, for his own praise, for his own glory, for his own worship. And we find life. We find life when we submit ourselves to that truth. So, apart from the wrath of God, early on in Romans, Paul reveals something else that God has revealed. So if we would turn back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And this is where the good news comes. Paul says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 17 says, For in it, the righteousness of God or the righteousness from God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So now we make a contrast of, of this understanding, and we, we must understand it. We, we must have the bad news. We must, we must know the state in which we stand before a holy God prior to us receiving grace. Because if I just say that Jesus died for you, what does that mean unless you know the sin in which he sacrificed himself for you, right? It means nothing apart from that. If I think I'm a good person before a holy God and I hear Jesus died for me, what, why? What does that profit me? But if I understand how wretched I am before a holy God, if I understand my depravity before a holy God, and I hear that Jesus died for me, he took a, a sacrifice for me, this sinner, I'm all the more grateful. I'm all the more in the position that I should be. So the contrast is that the wrath of God was being revealed to us, and now we have something else revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. We have this gospel message revealed to us. It's the power of God for the salvation of all men, for believers. In it, we obtain a right standing before God. So we go from this place of being condemned before a holy God and deserving of hell's fire and wrath to this place of being right before a holy God, being seen as completely righteous before a holy God and not because of our own doing, not because of our own works, but because of what Christ has done. We have right standing before God, from God, by faith, from beginning to end. And as redeemed and righteous people of God, we now live by faith. We live convinced of what Christ has done in our life. For a mighty God, who who could have easily uh, been completely justified in pouring his wrath on us, in his grace and his mercy and his love and compassion, pursues us. He chose us in, uh, in him before the foundation of the earth. He sent his son to die for our sins. He calls us to him, and he calls us his children he lovingly pursues us, and after his initial pursuit, he calls us to live lives of a constant pursuit of him. So we go from that place of, of turning aside and worshiping the created things and worshiping ourselves to now him calling us and, and giving us a new heart, taking our heart of stone and giving us a new heart of flesh, regeneration, and, and us now getting to experience his presence and live before his face for all of our days. Now we become pursuers of him. We are now back to that original intent in which he created us. And that is an amazing thing that we should not take lightly. He lovingly pursues us and calls us to constantly pursue him. And he is a God who can be sought after by his children. This is true. Our relationship with God is just that. It is a relationship, and a relationship requires that people are pursuing one another. God is pursuing us, and we should be pursuing him. We should be seeking after God. Turn to Acts chapter 17, verse 22. All right, 22, he says, So Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, said, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation and of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God." and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. So Paul was on the hill of Areopagus in Athens Greek before some Greek men, And they were known as the intellectuals. They were the progressives. They were the wise philosophers of the world at that time. They were held in high esteem for their so-called knowledge. Uh, Philosophy and science can look so dressed up. Right? It could be so intimidating. It could seem so sophisticated. We think of you know, an atheist as, as, a, as, a, as a smart person, right? A lot of professors, a lot of folks who, who claim these different things. But what does the Bible say about a person who believes not in God? Or a person who submits not to God? The Bible calls him a fool. The Bible calls him a fool. And we need to understand that true intellect... And true wisdom and true knowledge is not that of the world. is that not which is found in a science book or found being taught by men in in top universities. But wisdom and knowledge is that which comes from the word of God. That is a radical statement, especially in, in today's age. But we as believers need to be convinced that the word of God is true. That every word written in it is true and that it is sufficient to guide and lead our lives on a daily basis. We must see God's wisdom as divine and pure and holy and hold that in high esteem above what a professor says in some university. This is very important. We need to teach that to to our children and let them know that this is true intellect. You want to be a smart person? Know the Word of God, right? We shouldn't be intimidated by an atheist. We shouldn't be intimidated by a person who who spouts off a bunch of scientific facts because our God relegates that to foolishness, to foolishness. So we know that God's revealed word is truth and wisdom. In Psalms 14, 1, it says that the fool says in his heart, that there is no God. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. Remember, it is clearly perceived from the beginning of creation that God is true and that men are without excuse. So they were not intellectual. They were not wise but rather they were the very ones in which Romans was talking about when he says that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And Paul knew this. Paul saw this, right? He understood this. He wasn't going to them. He wasn't intimidated by them because of their so-called knowledge, but he went to, sh- to share with them truth, right? We shouldn't be afraid to share the truth, we will look like fools. We will. The world thinks that this is foolishness. We will look like fools. I, I remember um, years ago uh, coming to the conclusion that um, I just need to preach the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of men, right? I would be walking around college campuses. And we'd be evangelizing and sharing the gospel with people, and I would run into these intellectual people, and they would be spouting off these, you know, uh, scientific things and all of this stuff, right? And it was intimidating, you know, it's like, oh, what? The second law of thermodynamics and this and that, and, you know, and, you know, it, it made me want to go and study and understand that stuff, and, and I think we should to an extent, and we see that Paul is actually quoting some of their philosophers here and understood the wisdom at that time and was able to combat it with truth. So there should be a level of apologetics that we, we come to with that stuff, but at the end of the day, the goal is that heart of that person and the soul of that person is for that person to be saved, is for that person's soul to be secure before a holy God that they would be righteous when they stand before him. So let's not get caught up in debating. Let's not get caught up in who's smarter, but let's preach the gospel and pray for that person, that God would transform their heart and make them new. Right? That is the ultimate goal. So he says that they are not served, that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. That indicates a continuous action of people seeking God. He's, he's letting them know, like, hey, guys, all the, the inscriptions you got here of all these gods, that's not right. You have something that, that says the unknown God. Let me let you know that this unknown God whom, whom you make this uh, inscription for, he is actually the true God. He's actually the God of gods. And all these other things that you relegate are just created things. They're nothing. They're no gods. We are to worship him. He has created us to seek after him, right? And that is our purpose. Matthew Henry says, Finite understanding cannot perfectly know an infinite being, but blessed be God, there is that which may be known, enough to lead us to our chief end, the glorifying and enjoying of him. Though he be high and holy, he is a God who can be found by those who earnestly seek him. He presents to us in so many passages that if we would just seek him with all of our hearts, that he can be found. And when he is found by us, we find life. We find life. We need him. We need him. We absolutely need him. We should be seeking the presence of God. We should be living before his face on a daily basis. I have a lot of scriptures here, so we'll see which ones we go through, um, talking about being seekers of God. So one sense we are to be seeking God when we are distressed, and we see that all through the Psalms. In Psalm sixty-nine twenty-nine, he says, But I am afflicted in pain, Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord appears or hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. He hears us. And we are to seek God in times of being distressed, but not just then. We're to be seeking God continually. We're to always be before his presence. We're to always be living before his face. And we see that in scripture. For that is the very... Reason his wrath kindles is because people do not honor him as they should. People do not thank them him as they should. We are to constantly be seeking God. So, two ways in which we should be seeking God on a daily basis, which I want to focus on for a few minutes, is prayer and the word of God. And these are both graces from God in which we practice and live out our newfound faith, our newfound faith. These are fundamentally given for the seeking and communion of God. So prayer, prayer is talking with God. Is that a light statement? Prayer is talking with God, the God of the universe, And that is an awesome truth. And we just went from the wrath of God being revealed to a salvation being revealed, and now we can communicate with the creator of the universe. We now get to communicate with the God who spoke all things into existence. That is awesome. So prayer largely consists of petitions, but that's not it. So we'll talk about petitions. Petition is asking God for something. And we are to be asking God for things. And when we ask God for things, we're to ask for things in faith, right? And we're to ask for things in accordance for God's will. Very important. So there's a, a movement out there that likes to twist this and says that we can just ask God for anything that our heart desires. But the problem is is they have wicked hearts. The problem is is their heart's desire is not in line with God's desire. It's not in line with what God wants for His kingdom. Their heart's desire is to have things. Their heart's desire is to have money and clothes and cars. And they make up these false doctrines to say that if you seek out to God, if you sow a tithe into my church, and you ask God for this, then he will take care of your bills, and he will, he will get you a Bentley, and he will get you a plane, and this and that. And because I'm a man of God, and because I am a child of the king, I deserve to have things. I deserve to have money. I should be in a mansion. I should be in a plane. Matter of fact, congregation, I need you guys to raise $60 million so I can get myself a private jet. Are you guys okay with that? No? No. (laughs) What about a new alternator? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) That's not what prayer is for. He says, if you ask for anything in accordance with my will, then it will be done. So we are to be people who are transformed and changed by the amazing grace of God. So now we now hate the things that we used to love, the sin, the evil. We hate those things now. We now long for righteousness and holiness before our God. We now long to see his kingdom advance. We now long to see souls saved and transformed. We now long to see his name glorified in all of the earth. And that's should be our heart's desire. And that should be the things that we pray for. And as we are praying for these things in faith, they will be done by him. They will be done by him. But we must have faith. We must have faith. Turn to James chapter 1, verse 6. James 1, 6 says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Asking of God should be done in faith. And he says in John 14:13, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So there we see that, that purpose again, the glory of God. The glory of God. The reason we're made, the reason that we exist on this earth is to glorify him. And the reason that everything exists in, in all of our endeavors are to glorify him, right? So whatever we ask in his name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. But don't twist that to think that God is going to get you a jet. He may, if it's according to his will, but maybe not. So next, with prayer, apart from petitioning, we have this idea of adoration, this idea of reverence and worship to God. We should be worshiping and and reverencing our God. Turn to Psalms 145. He says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on the wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and will, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. The Lord is faithful in all His words and kind in all His works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raising up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and give you and give them their food in due season to open your hand, to satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him and all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who hear him and he hears their cries and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord And let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. We are to be worshiping God, to be giving him reverence in our prayers, right? So not just constantly asking him for things, but to be glorifying him as he ought to be glorifying to be telling him of the things, of of his attributes and characteristics, to be praising him for such things, for his mercy, for his compassion, for his love, for his grace, for all of these things that he has so bestowed upon us. His steadfast love, the fact that he is slow to anger towards us, the fact that we deserve wrath when he has shown us mercy and compassion. We should be praising God for these things. And another thing, in prayer, we need to confess. For although we have been transferred from the kingdom of of darkness to the kingdom of light, we're not perfectly righteous. We still sin, we still fall short of God's glorious grace. And he beckons us to confess our sin before him, that he would cleanse us of these things. We should be continually become, coming before God and acknowledging our sin. And don't think this is something where you have to remember every single sin that you did, and if you don't remember and confess it, then you're not going to go to heaven. We're not saying that, but we should be constantly coming before God and confessing our sins for our own hearts and our own conscience before a holy God. Turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Though my groaning all day long for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We serve a forgiving God. Let's come to him. He knows all. Let's come to him and confess and, and, and be cleared of our, of our conscience for the sins that we've committed. And then lastly, with prayer, we should be thankful. We should be thankful. Thanksgiving, we're to be thankful for God, for all of the blessings that he's bestowed upon us in heartfelt honor towards God. Not just with our lips, but our hearts must be there. Right in Thanksgiving, go to Psalm fifty, verse twenty-three. Psalm fifty, twenty-three. It says, "The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me." No turn there, but Psalm one hundred four through five says, "Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him." Bless his name, for the Lord is good, and his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. We're to be thankful to God. So petitioning God for things that are in accordance with his will, praying in faith, believing that he will do it, believing that he is able, believing that he is the God who is sovereign, the God who is all-powerful and able to make anything happen, we should be praying these things in accordance with his will, believing it, asking. We should be adoring him in our prayers, giving him reverence and worship for his amazing attributes and the things that he showers upon us daily. We're to be confessing our sin before a holy God that our conscience would be clear before him asking that he would cleanse us of all unrighteousness and lead us in sanctification that we would look more like his son every day until that final day in which he raises us up in glory and we should be giving him thanks thankful for all of the blessings heartfelt honor towards our God this it's something that we are to be doing all the time. We find strength and transformation, and we're able to witness the power of God to be rightly used when we pray. We may not be in ministry like a pastor, but we should all have a ministry of prayer, not only for ourselves, but for our families and for this congregation. Saints, I hope you're praying for this church. I hope you're praying for our pastor, pastors. I hope you're praying for our worship team, our worship leaders. I hope you're praying for the people who are doing the nursery. I hope you're praying for all the members of the congregation. We need each other, right? We are one body, and we are all here together to advance the kingdom of God, and we cannot do that apart from God's power. So we need to be praying so again, please be praying throughout the week for the church, praying for the pastor, praying for the people in your small groups and your community groups, lifting him up before God so that we would all walk in, in, in purity before him, that we would stand holy, that we would, we would not fall into the temptations of this world because this world is getting crazier and crazier. And we shouldn't be just ranting about it on Facebook, but we should be praying to our God hoping that change will come, believing that change will come, believing that the saints can be lights to a dark world, right? We need to be praying. So next, um, I want us to understand that prayer isn't something that is just what we do when we wake up in the morning for a few minutes before we brush our teeth. I hope you brush your teeth. And before we eat a meal, prayer is something that we should be constantly doing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. We should be continually praying to God all the time, right? And it doesn't have to be some grand thing if you're in your cubicle at work you're probably not going to be on your knees shouting out to God you know God save this work save these people you know but you can be praying at that time when you're typing away you know pray for that neighbor pray for that person pray when that person offends you rather than getting back at them right pray 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 you should be constantly praying before God and it should become a, a discipline right A lot of us don't have plans. I know a lot of times I don't make a conscious plan of when I'm going to pray before God. It's just kind of like, all right, I'll pray when I get in the car on my way to work, you know, and then I'm thinking about my day and, you know, get messed up and whatnot. You know, I need to set aside time to pray, right? Not, Not only should we be praying constantly, but we should be disciplined, right? Because we are imperfect people, We're not just going to constantly be praying all the time, right? So we need to set aside disciplined time. And as we set aside disciplined time, it will become something that we do more frequently, and we can become people who pray without ceasing, right? We need to constantly pray. We constantly need the power of God in our lives if we are to be effective for the kingdom of God. So lastly, the importance of the Holy Scriptures, You got to be people who know this book. Again, this is true intellect. This is true wisdom. This is our instruction book to lead us and guide us in what we are to do. It's the inerrant word of God. It's without error. It's infallible. It cannot fail. It will not be broken. And this book is god breathe. It's god breathe. It's verbally inspired. Scripture was breathed out Into by God by using human vehicles to produce it. This is God's word. This is God's word. And it is an amazing book. Understand that this isn't just one book that was just written by some guy, you know, coming together with all these things. First of all, I don't know anyone who would create a God like that a wrathful, vengeful God. This guy wasn't created, this wasn't just some book that was just written and put together, but this is a a, a compilation of 66 different books from 40 different authors over a period of about 1500 years and all coming together in, in a cohesive bond, speaking of the God of the universe. That's amazing. That is the providential hand of God bringing the canon of scripture together for us to lead and guide our lives, right? This is the holy book of God, and there are no other books like it. This is treasure, and we should cherish it, and we should not take it lightly. We need to be people who are in the book daily, and we should be reading through it. Even Leviticus, I know it's hard. I'm reading it now, and I'm just like, ah, okay, sacrifice, sacrifice, but. Study it. Study it. It's actually interesting. Exodus, when you think about the the temple and all that stuff, uh, I would encourage you guys to get an ESV study Bible, and it kind of breaks down all of that stuff, and you get to see the structure and what it represented and how Christ was represented in in the Old Testament. It's really fascinating when you really start to study it. If you're kind of just reading it, and you're like, all right, six cubics by 10, this and that and that. But if you understand the, the context and the meaning behind it, it's great. God is doing something. It's pointing towards Christ. It's amazing. This Bible is amazing. This book is amazing. It transforms us. It makes us new. It sanctifies us, right? It's important that we read it and understand it as our standard of truth. It's our standard of truth. Turn to Jeremiah. No, don't. Nope. nope don't, don't turn, turn. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word became to me a joy and a delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. He ate them, and they became a joy and a delight of his heart. Saints and and people in here who who know not God, I, I need you to know that, Having a relationship with God is not boring, it's not mundane, but it is life. Apart from that is is purposelessness and, and just merely existing, but if you want life, it is found in God. It is found in a submitted life to God, and when we pray... We're before the presence of God, who is the God of joy, who's the God of love, who's the God of peace. And when we we seek out his truth in scripture on how to live our lives, we are communing and hearing the very words from the God of love and joy and peace, and we are in his presence. This isn't boring. This isn't boring. This is life. We should be doing these things. It is our connection to God. It is how He has chosen to reveal Himself. And we know nothing of Him apart from this book. There is no other revelation of God apart from His Word. And if anyone says so, anathema. Let them be accursed. It is not true. Only His Word reveals Him. Psalm 40, verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, O oh my God, your laws within my heart. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. We are to be dependent people before a holy God. We need his word. We need to be praying. We need his power in our lives to lead us. And us being people who pray is showing our dependence upon God. And when we're not praying, we're showing that practically we don't need him at that moment. Practically we we don't need him at that moment and we got it all together ourselves. So we should not be without prayer. And I know we all have times of dry seasons, but that's when it becomes a discipline That's when it becomes a discipline. That's when it becomes a seeking God earnestly with all of our hearts that we would find him and know his presence and that his joy would be restored in our lives. Never give up on seeking God. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. It's our sanctification We learn doctrine to deal with life. Don't despise doctrine. A lot of people despise and hate that word. They hate that word doctrine. They hate theology. You are being theological when you talk about God. You are being doctrinal when you talk about things in Scripture. There's nothing wrong with that. These are words that the Bible uses. Maybe not theology, but they are words that the Bible uses, Right? And it is important that we have a right doctrine so that we would know how to rightly live out life, right? That's why we don't submit to every teacher. That's why we got to test the spirit by the word of God, right? We have to understand what the Bible says for ourselves so that we would not be deceived, right? Doctrine is awesome. Because I understand the doctrine of, of God's sovereignty, I'm able to go through my life with less worry, with less fear and anxiety, knowing that, God, you're in control. God, you have this going on. I'm able to go into next week knowing that, God, you are in control. That, God, you set people in the place. Lord, that you orchestrate all the events in the world. I trust you. And that's because of doctrine. We are to be people who know the word of God. So we should read the word of God from cover to cover. We should study it to understand what it's saying. We're not just reading a, a portion of it to say that we read a portion of it, but we should be understanding it. We should be pouring over it before God and, and seeking to understand the intended meaning of the author. And we should be memorizing it. We should be hiding it in our hearts so that we would sin not against God constantly. This should be our priority to seek God, to continually live before his face, to continually be in his presence, to pray, to be reading his word, to be enjoying him, our great God, and remembering the wrath that he saved us from, remembering what he's transformed us from and what he has called us unto. He has not just called us to Be forgiven simply. That is great, but he's called us to live lives in him, to live lives of glorifying him. And when we live lives of glorifying him, we find fulfillment. We find satisfaction. We find joy. This is what we should be doing constantly. And for you who don't know God, I truly wish that you would know him. I truly wish that you could know his sweetness towards his children. I wish that you could commune with him. I want you to know that you were created to do that. And in that, you will find fulfillment when you submit your life to him. Truly, he's a nightmare for the one who does not know his son. But to the believer, he's a dream. A dream. He wants us in his freedom, actually, not to be without man, but with him in our, in the same freedom, not against him, but for him, and that apart from or even counter to what man deserves, he wants, in fact, to become man's partner, his almighty and compassionate savior. He chooses to give man the benefit of his power, which encompasses not only the high and the distant, but also the deep and the near, in order to maintain communion with him in the realm guaranteed by his deity. He determines to love him, to be his God, his Lord, his compassionate preserver and savior to eternal life, and to desire his praise and service. God is good. God is good. And if you know him, if you've tasted of his joy, seek him constantly. Seek him constantly. Cease not to be before his face. And if you don't know him, I urge you to cry out to him that he would reveal himself to you so that you would know his sweetness and experience him for all your days. And we experience such a great joy by knowing him on this earth. Imagine what that joy will be like. And we are before him perfectly in heaven for all eternity. God is good, and he is a God who is able to be seeked. Let's pray.